Welcome to Thrive Community Podcast. We are a church community that is passionate about helping you thrive in your life with Jesus. If you're after more information about Thrive Community, hop onto our website at www.thrivecommunity.au. We hope you feel encouraged and inspired by this message. I do want to continue on from, from where we finished up last Sunday and we were talking last Sunday primarily around what the blood of Jesus has done for us and our souls. The wholeness that we can experience in our mind, our will and our emotions as a result of all that God has done through his son Jesus. And I opened last week with you know talking about me being away and enjoying a buffet breakfast um, and how I enjoy that kind of all-inclusive nature and kind of the number of courses that I go through. Unfortunately, no buffet breakfast this week, um, but the salvation that we have in Jesus is just as all-inclusive today as it was last week, as it was a thousand years ago, as it was 2,000 years ago when he first died on the cross. And the scripture we began with last week, I'll just do a one or two minute quick overview. Hebrews 7.25 from the Amplified Classic Translation, and I love this because it speaks about the complete work of Christ. It says, therefore, he is able also to save to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity, those who come to God through him, since he is always living to make petition to God and intercede with him and intervene for them. I love that. But we have been saved to the uttermost, but I wonder whether we're living out our relationship with God to the uttermost and all that he's made available for us. For our salvation is complete, perfect, final, and for all time. And we said that another way perhaps of expressing this uttermost salvation is to say that when Jesus paid the price, when he shed his blood, when he died on the cross, when he rose again from the dead, that he saved our whole selves. He saved us spirit, soul, and body. It was a complete uttermost work. And 1 Thessalonians 5.23 talks about that, right? May the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete. See, the work of Jesus impacts and has made a way for us to experience him, spirit, soul, and body. That's not just a spiritual reality, but it impacts our physical reality as well and our emotional health, spirit, soul, and body. And it's through the blood of Christ that we have access to all of this. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. As I said last week, all throughout history, even in the Old Testament, it was the blood that made atonement for one's life and brought us into unity with God back then on a temporary basis because they didn't have the eternal sacrifice of Christ. But we now have that today. And so I mentioned last week, we started with the first one, the three kind of significant blood moments in the life of Jesus during his time on earth. We looked last week at Jesus sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and the agony that he endured in his soul to pay the price for us to find wholeness in our souls. And then Jesus, his blood was spilt in the whipping, in the beating, in him being pierced and crucified. He endured that suffering in his physical body. And then there's the third moment where after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat and sealed our salvation from a spiritual perspective forever. 
And so those three moments, the, the, the drops of blood that Jesus sweat and shed in the Garden of Gethsemane that made a way for us to experience wholeness in our souls. Jesus' blood that was spilt in the whipping and the beating and the piercing and the crucifixion. That's what we're going to focus on today. And then perhaps next week or the week after, we'll spend probably at least a couple of weeks leading into Easter, focusing on all that has been accomplished for us spiritually to be saved and redeemed and reconciled back into relationship with God. But as I said, today we're going to dig into what the blood of Christ means in the physical realm for our physical bodies. And as I was kind of wrestling with this, praying with this this week, you know, it often is one of the more challenging or perhaps confronting topics to talk about because it's dealing with the here and now, what we can actually see. Right? I think sometimes if we're talking about the soul side of things or the spirit, it certainly can have a big impact for us internally but it's not in the realm that we necessarily see or touch. And so at times it can be easier perhaps to pray about things that are soul-related or spirit-related because you don't necessarily feel like, you know, you're putting your faith out there for something to happen immediately or straight away. Um, But having to speak about divine healing and unpacking that, there can be something difficult or challenging about that, even all of our different experiences and circumstances, right? The reality is I'm sure we've all had perhaps times where, We would have liked something to play out one way in the area of healing. We might have prayed and it hasn't played out the way that we thought or expected. And it's not always easy to pray or talk about things that are so immediate and so in front of us. And it reminded me of Matthew 9. And I feel like, you know, this is certainly one way of of thinking about this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders at the time. Matthew 9, 5 to 8. And this is Jesus dealing with a, a crippled man. And he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. And then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. And I feel like one way that I at least interpret this interaction is Jesus is almost saying, well, For you, perhaps, you think it's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven because there's no outward display of that reality. It's actually more difficult to say, get up and walk because you will see the authority, you will see the power in the moment. Although we know in reality, I think in the spiritual realm, it's it's more difficult to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because it's only through Christ. But I think what he's pointing out here is that in, in the here and now, it's often harder to talk about things that need an immediate response than the underlying spiritual reality. And I think that's the same for us. And, and because of that tension, when it comes to our bodies and all that the death and the burial and the resurrection and the blood of Jesus has accomplished for us, as I said, it can bring up challenging questions, difficult questions around why something happened, why something didn't, why perhaps we prayed for someone and they didn't get healed the way that we thought. And they're challenging things that require a bit of processing and perhaps sometimes can, can lead us going down paths where our theology gets a little bit confused around where things are at and and how it all fits together and what the blood of Jesus really has done for us. Because I think one of the the biggest temptations in those questions, in that wrestling, I think it's healthy to be able to wrestle and, and question. But we need to try to avoid the temptation where we end up letting our circumstances shape our theology rather than staying rooted and grounded in the Word of God. You know, another way of saying that perhaps is that we need to view our circumstances through the lens of the Word of God, rather than viewing the Word of God through the lens 
of our circumstances. We need to make sure we stay rooted and grounded in the Word of God, which sometimes is easier said than done when you've got circumstances that are right in front of you day after day. But it's really important to continue to come back to the truth of the Word of God because, look, I don't understand it all. I'm sure none of us understand why things play out certain ways, and it's not necessarily up to us to understand it all. I don't know why some people have certain healing journeys and others have something completely different. But his ways are higher than our ways. And in the midst of all of that uncertainty, in the midst of all of those questions, we can still hold on to the fact that his word is true and that his promises are yes and amen. And so in coming into this week, I shared this on on the WhatsApp as well, that You know, I've been praying two things specifically. One is that God would renew our minds to the truth of the word of God. That perhaps if there's promises or things that we've drifted from, that we would come back and grab a hold of the truth of the word of God. And that in our hearts, faith would be revived again to believe for healing, to apply the blood of Jesus in our circumstances and situations. So what we're going to do, I'm just going to lay a little bit of a foundation. And I know for many of us, We've been in kind of Pentecostal charismatic movements for for a long time and and probably been in a place where we believe God's word is for divine healing for for many, many years. But I pray that in going through some of this foundational stuff, either it gives you some additional scriptural support for perhaps the positions that you've held for a long time, or maybe it even helps you, you know, talk about this with some others in your world in conversations that you're having as well. Or maybe it does just stir you up afresh to believe for all that Jesus has paid the price for for us. So I'm going to share just a couple of, a bit of a Q&A style, um, Sarah called it, you know, like the FAQ on a website, right? Just a couple of the frequently asked questions and lay a bit of a foundation for what God has done for us when it comes to healing. I'll then, you know, bring that into a brief message around all that Jesus has suffered for us and what the blood of Christ has made available. And then we'll share communion and, and pray Together, So starting that FAQ, I think one of the, the top line questions has to be, you know, is God's will for physical health? Does God actually want us all to be physically healthy? Because there are parts of the body of Christ in many cases that kind of equate a deeper spirituality with a physical suffering and sickness. And so we need to have that at a minimum established in our hearts if we're going to go forward and apply the blood of Christ to our lives and to the the lives of those around us and see people healed. We need to settle this in our hearts if we're going to live in the fullness of all that God has done for us, not only for ourselves, but if we're going to be those that actually fulfill the command of of God and that Jesus sent his disciples out to do, preach the kingdom and heal the sick. If we're going to be people who release the kingdom around us, we need to settle some of these things in, in our hearts. And personally for me, I think if you follow God's heart all through scripture, the answer to this question becomes increasingly clear. There's obviously no mention of sickness or disease in the Garden of Eden. There's no mention actually of sickness or disease until almost right at the end of the book of Genesis, which is, which is really interesting. And my kind of personal theology around this is that I think sickness and disease entered into humanity as a result of the fall, as a result of, of sin back then. And, and we begin to see more and more sickness as the generations go on, as sin takes a stronger and stronger hold on humanity. And we also almost see that today in so many different ways, right? That the state of society out there is worse than it was a thousand years ago in, in many ways, more anti-God and probably further in some ways from, from 
where God wants us to be. And it's sin continuing to have a, a stronger and stronger hold on the, on the hearts of people as the generations go on. And that's why it's so important for us to be able to stand our ground and be people who stand up for truth and, and carry the kingdom of God. So the first mention of sickness or disease is towards the end of Genesis. But quite quickly after that, God steps in in, in Exodus 15, right after the Israelites you know, are delivered from Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and then God reveals his desire for them to be healed and healthy. It says in Exodus 15, 26, if you will diligently listen and pay attention to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and listen to his commandments and keep all his precepts, then I will not put on you any of the diseases which I've put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you, or Jehovah Rapha. Many of you will be familiar with that passage. And here we see God's heart for his people to be physically healthy. And it, in fact, all throughout the law, so much of the law was about keeping the people of God healthy. So much of it was about hygiene, health, cleaning, washing, all of those things. That was revealing God's heart for his people to be a physically healthy people. And then obviously, when Jesus was walking the earth, his three years of ministry and the ministry of the disciples, the early church, there was healing of the sick all over the place. And, and not just, you know, um, healing in the sense of whether it's demonic deliverance or perhaps forgiveness of sin. But very clearly, there's a, many stories of people struggling with physical sickness or physical issues and they were healed and restored. And then finally, if you kind of follow God's heart, heart all the way through Scripture, right at the very end in Revelation, again, we see God's heart for his people to be living free from sickness, disease, pain and suffering Revelation 21 verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be anguish, sorrow and mourning, nor grief, nor pain anymore for the old conditions and the former order of things have passed away. So I feel like if you follow God's heart through scripture, you see quite clearly that, clearly that his desire is for us to be walking in physical health. That doesn't mean, you know, there isn't at times a disconnect between his heart because we live in a world that's got all sorts of issues going on. And that kind of flows into the next question. If we believe that God's will is for us to be healthy, then we need to be asking ourselves, well, where does sickness come from? What, what causes sickness? Why is it here? And I think, again, it's really helpful to just begin putting a framework around this based on a particular passage of Scripture. And I want to look at John chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. John 9, 1 to 3. And I'm not sure whether people have ever kind of focused on this in the context of understanding the causes of sickness before. But John 9, verse 1, it says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And so I feel like just in these couple of verses, it reveals the three causes of sickness and physical health issues. Very clearly, you know, the, the comment from one of the, the pastors by there, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Sorry, from his disciples. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Reveals two causes of sickness, you know, there can be times where sickness is caused by personal sin, 
There can be times where sickness is caused by generational sin. And you do see that in some families where sickness is passed down from generation to generation. But Jesus says, you know, neither this man nor his parents have sinned. Those, those aren't the only two causes of, of sin. Jesus says that it's neither of those things. And I feel like underneath what Jesus is saying here, he says, but the works of God should be revealed in him. It's kind of turning to his disciples and saying, don't try and find someone to blame. Because that was the mindset in a lot of ways with the law, that there was this kind of cause and effect scenario where somebody made a mistake and then they were punished as a result of breaking the law. Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't try and find someone to blame all the time. Sickness actually is just a part of this world. And instead of focusing on who to blame, focus on what God can do in that circumstance, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Neither this man nor his parents have sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And so we've got this third cause of sickness, and that's simply living in a sin-cursed world, right? Sometimes we don't understand it. It's not because of personal sin. It's not because of generational sin. We just live in a world that is a fallen world, and there's just crap stuff that happens sometimes, to, to, to be honest. And that's part of the reality of living in a fallen world. And clearly, you read through the Old Testament, sickness was a part of the curse of the law. You read that in Deuteronomy 28 and, and a number of other places. And, and it doesn't just name particular sicknesses. I find this really interesting. In Deuteronomy 28, I'm going to read 58 to 61. If you're not careful to do all the words of the law that are in this, written in this book, to fear and honor with reverence the glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. Moreover, he will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt, which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, the Lord will bring on you every sickness and every plague, which is not written in this book of the law until you are destroyed. And so that's giving us an insight that every sickness and every disease, whether it's mentioned in Scripture or not, actually is a result of the curse. And so living in a world that is subject to the curse means that there is sickness and there is disease around. And that is, I think, a really important sort of reference point to have in our theology because we don't want to be like the disciples here where we're focusing on who to blame all the time or being in a place where you're effectively, you know, in speaking to someone, acting as if they've necessarily always done something wrong and it's their fault that they find themselves in the scenario and the circumstances that they're in. I think that can be a really damaging theology to have. If we think that the only two causes are personal sin or generational sin, we end up blaming people or judging people um, because of the circumstances when the reality is some of it's just part of living in a fallen world. And as I said there, I love that Jesus basically was saying, don't focus on who to blame, but instead focus on what God can do in that circumstance. Instead of focusing on this or that person, let's focus on the ways that God can be glorified in the midst of what we're facing. And so with that as a bit of a foundation that God's will is for us to, to live in health and that the causes of sin, they might be personal, the causes of sickness might be personal sin, generational sin, or the sin-cursed world. But we want to be focused on what God can do in the midst of the circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in, how his precious blood has made a way for us to experience healing. And so I'm just going to spend a few minutes talking about what Jesus has endured, what he has suffered, what he has walked through for us, how he has paid the price for our healing. 
And we're going to start in the Old Testament, a very familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of you. It was quoted in two places in the New Testament as well. I'm sure if I went around and asked, you'd all probably get it right. But Isaiah 53, an amazing prophecy from Isaiah. I mentioned it last week as well. And there's so much in here that is astounding when you think about the detail and that it was written, you know, centuries before Jesus actually went to the cross. Isaiah 53, I'm going to read verses 3 to 5. I'm reading from the Amplified Classic just because it unpacks the words a little bit more. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He was despised and rejected and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and pains and acquainted with grief and sickness. And like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we did not appreciate his worth or have any esteem for him. Isn't that a sad statement that the, those around at the time did not appreciate his worth or have any esteem for him? May that never be said of us. May we always recognize the worth of Jesus and all that he has done. And, amen. And then continuing on, surely he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, weaknesses and distresses and carried our sorrows and pains of punishment. Yet we ignorantly considered him stricken, smitten and afflicted by God as if with leprosy. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt and iniquities. The chastisement needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. And with the stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. With the stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. Or by his stripes, we are healed. And look, depending on the commentary that you read, there's some commentaries around this passage that kind of go down the path of suggesting that this was really a kind of metaphorical passage and it was using physical sickness and illness as a metaphor of explaining the redemption and the forgiveness of sin that we experience. And, you know, I'm not here to argue with different commentators of of the passage in Isaiah 53, but what I can do is look at the ways that that particular passage was used in the New Testament and it clearly talks about physical healing. We look at 1 Peter 2.24, and I love this because it's speaking about, you know, his body, and that's what we're talking about today, that the blood of Jesus and what he endured in his body made a way for us to experience wholeness in ours. 1 Peter 2.24, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Again, a reference back to Isaiah 53. So there's a couple of things I want to quickly draw out of this this verse that I think are are really important. The first one, the word used for wounds there, indicates like a full body bruise or a wound that covers your entire body. And in fact, it talks about a, a wound that trickles with blood. There's this picture here that the wounds of Jesus covered his whole body. He was suffering physically and wounded across his whole body. And these were wounds that were trickling with blood. And then the word healed that's used there, by his wounds you are healed, is used 28 times in the New Testament. And not once is it ever translated as forgiven or redeemed or cleansed in the spiritual sense. It's almost always used in the context of healing of a physical condition. It's this word that's used when the woman with the issue of blood is healed. 
That's this word that's used when Jesus heals the ear of the servant of the high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come to arrest him. And it's Peter that gets a bit excited and chops off the, the servant's ear. It's this word that's used when Jesus heals that servant's ear. When Peter and John heal the lame man at Gate Beautiful, that's this word that's used. Very clearly, it's a word that's used in the context of physical healing and restoration. And so if we put those couple of kind of expanded definitions together, 1 Peter 2.24 effectively says that by his, his wounds that trickle with blood, you are healed in your body. By his wounds that trickle with blood, you are healed in your body. And then the next kind of question, and maybe it's just how my mind works, I go, well, why is it by his stripes? What is it about his stripes? Why is it by his stripes that we are healed? Why is it those wounds that made a way for us to experience healing? And look, being honest, I don't have a perfect answer to that. It's a little bit like we said before, we don't need to understand it all. But just a couple of thoughts as we kind of pull some of this together. First, if, if sickness is a part of the curse of sin, which we talked about before, Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ purchased our freedom and redeemed us from the curse of the law and its condemnation by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs crucified on a tree or on the cross. And so there is a connection between our redemption from the curse and Jesus and the wounds that he endured on the cross. And perhaps there's a link there that if sickness was a part of the curse, we find redemption from that through the wounds that he endured on the cross. And also coming back to what I shared last week, that principle of divine exchange, right? That he suffered such anguish in his soul so that we might find wholeness and peace in ours. In the same way, Jesus was wounded in his body. His blood was spilt. He was suffering immensely physically, beaten, whipped, pierced and broken so that we might have wholeness in our bodies. That powerful divine exchange that took place. Because ultimately it's the blood that makes atonement as we saw in Leviticus 17. There's something about the blood that when Jesus was wounded and his blood was spilled that makes atonement for us and made a way for us to experience health in our bodies. And so just for the next few minutes, I want to look more closely at what Jesus endured. Because if we're coming at this from the perspective that said he endured such agony and such suffering so that we could have that exchange where all of our suffering was endured on, by him on our behalf so that we could experience wholeness and health. It's important for us to understand all that he endured and all that he walked through. And so there's three specific things I want to look at that Jesus endured in his last 24 hours that, that would have caused him to have shed blood, that would have caused him to have been wounded. And we're going to start in John 19, verses 1 to 2. And this talks specifically about two of those things. So those three things that Jesus endured in his last 24 hours. One, the, the Roman scourging or the whipping. There's the crown of thorns that was put on his head. And then the crucifixion itself. And John 19, 1 to 2 says, So then Pilate took Jesus and had him scourged, flogged, whipped. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe around him. And I wonder whether, I don't know, I'll, I'll put it up. Has anyone ever actually looked into what a Roman scourging involves? Because <laughs> when, you, when you dig into it, it's, it's not just 
You know, I don't know, the, the, the picture that came to mind when I was kind of thinking of a comparison point, right? I don't know whether anyone had the kind of the leather belt as the punishment when they were growing up for being naughty. There you go, it sounds like Carolyn might have. <laughs> we had the table tennis bat, actually, growing up. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I should cut that out of the recording. I'm not sure I'll get my parents in trouble. Um, but it's obviously so much more than just like a, a leather belt or something being whipped across your back or the back of your legs. This was a horrific brutal form of, of torture in a really kind of barbaric society at that, at that time. And so I'm just going to paint the picture. If you want to close your eyes or just listen in, then that's fine. I'm not going to physically paint the picture, I promise. My painting skills aren't that great, Alison. <laughs> but Jesus would have been stripped naked and then bound to a, a post that was a few feet tall with his hands and wrists tied over his head so that he couldn't move or wriggle around. And the scourge or the whip that would have been used had a small wooden handle with several leather straps coming out. And on each of those pieces of leather, there were bits of metal, wire, glass, jagged bits of bone that were attached to each of those pieces of leather. And often there were two torturers standing either side of that post so that they would take turns whipping from either side. And with each strike of that whip, pieces of metal and glass would have torn through Jesus' flesh. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for whole chunks of flesh to be ripped off as the whip came across someone's back and pulled away. But the whip wasn't just across his back. The length of those leather straps meant it would have curled around his abdomen and his chest, his buttocks, the back of his legs, and even his face. There are historical records of, of a Roman scourging that suggests that often people's spines were exposed. There was so much flesh torn off or bowels would spill out of people's bodies onto the ground. People often died of the scourging itself. And with that kind of picture where metal and glass and wire is tearing flesh off of Jesus, back, chest, abdomen, buttocks, back of the legs and his face, you can begin to see perhaps why by the Spirit of God, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 52, verse 14, that people would be horrified by the sight of Jesus and that he would be so disfigured that he no longer looked like a man. That his form was so marred that he no longer looked human. That's Isaiah 52, 14. And in my own kind of mental picture and imagination, you can see that, that Perhaps his face was so disfigured, bits of flesh torn away, his whole body covered in blood that he really no longer looked like a man. But this was just the beginning of the, of the physical punishment and suffering that Jesus endured for you and for me. You know, if, if we're reading through the whole passage from the point of the scourging, you've got to remember that that's how his body must have been like. And it says the next thing in John 19 that they put a crown of thorns on his head. And this wasn't 
a crown made of little rosebush prickles. Back in those days, often large spiky thorns were used as a way of keeping people out of different areas or away from your particular plot of land. And so there would have been thorns in the ground in different areas of the imperial grounds of Pilate at that time. And so these were long and sharp thorns. And enforcing the crown on Jesus' head, that that word put it on that's used there implies a, a violent push or forcefully shoving the crown of thorns on his head. It's likely that those, those thorns would have caused gashes all around his scalp and he would have had blood flowing down all around from his neck, the sides of his head and down onto his already disfigured face. And after the crown of thorns, it says they put a, a robe upon him. I'm not going to read through it all. You can read through it yourself. But even just that, how painful that must have been with a back that was torn up and shredded, having then a piece of cloth that congeals and sticks with the wounds. And then all of the soldiers, they were beating him with reeds, spitting on his face. Even that, if you dig into it, it suggests that there could have been hundreds of Roman soldiers that took turns spitting in his face. It wasn't just one person. He would have had spit all over him. And then Jesus still has the crucifixion to endure. You know, to begin with, he's been given the, the crossbeam and then Simon of Cyrene comes and carries it for a portion because you can imagine Jesus would have been losing so much blood, completely exhausted. But then he's laid down at the top of Golgotha where his back is already torn apart and probably then being rubbed against the wooden crossbeam. And he's got 12 centimeter nails being driven through his wrists. Traditional Roman crucifixion suggests that it was through his wrists rather than his palms. And then he's hoisted up into position. And when, when they hoist him up and put him on the, the vertical pole, he kind of slide down and his back would have rubbed against that wooden crossbeam. And once he's hoisted up into position, there's another large nail that's driven through his feet. And as I picture Jesus hanging there, I do see him completely covered in blood. From the crown of thorns on his head to the wounds of the Roman scourging across his face and his back, his chest, his abdomen, the back of his legs, the front of his legs as the whip curled around as well. And then the nails in his wrists and his feet. There would have been blood dripping and perhaps even dried all over his body. So disfigured that he didn't even look like a man. And if he's covered in blood from head to toe, that's the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for you and me. And I can't help but think of that powerful principle of divine exchange. That his whole body was covered in his blood so that our whole body could be healed, redeemed, and we could experience wholeness. 
that his whole body from head to toe was completely covered in blood, wounded, pierced and broken. So that our whole bodies from head to toe could be healed and we could have a way to experience wholeness in our bodies from head to toe as well. So that no matter where in our body we might need healing, if it's our back, if it's our legs, our knees, our neck, no matter where in our body we might need healing, his blood has covered it in Jesus' name. Whether it's our wrists, our hands, wherever it might be, his blood has covered it, hallelujah, in Jesus' name. So what we're going to do is just spend a moment where we share communion together. And obviously the juice represents his blood that was spilt. The bread represents the body that was broken. And I pray that as we share communion together, there would be a fresh sense, not only of of gratitude, but of worship for all that he has done for us. And that our faith would also arise to go, if he endured all of that for me, then may I not live less than the fullness of what he's made available. That I don't want him to suffer and I leave behind the benefits that he's made available. That faith would arise in our hearts that as we share communion together, we would also experience the healing power of God flowing through our bodies.